TPC 119, 8.50 a.m., June 20th, 2020, with Mr. Bruce Sackman, author of Behind the Murder Curtain, which is available on Amazon, but not on Audible. I would like to see it on Audible. I'd like you to narrate it. You have, you hunted down the medical serial killers. You, these guys do shade, shady shit, and you take them down, and um, it's, it's odd that you are not more well-known because this does capture a lot of people's imagination, serial killers in general. But medical serial killers, as we talked about in, in our last episode, you were one of my first guests. It's a special kind of, there's almost cognitive dissonance that works for them because you see the guy or the woman in the white coat and it's, they're, you know, they're the savior. They're the, they're the medical professional, Hippocratic Oath. I mean, they're doing God's work and you almost don't want to give any credence to the idea that they could be serial killers but you see through their veil and you hunt them down so i'm going to stop talking how about you introduce yourself <laughs> well, that was a great beginning and everything you said i couldn't agree with more um so just a little bit about myself um i spent uh, 32 years in the federal government the majority of time uh, with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General, the Criminal Investigation Division. And what all that fancy titles mean is that the veterans hospitals, and there are many hospitals throughout the country, and I was responsible for the major criminal investigations involving these hospitals from West Virginia to Maine. And I had five officers that reported into me in New York City. And it was actually, you know, it was it was a real honor and privilege both to be in law enforcement and to be in law enforcement dedicated to helping our nation's heroes. It was like a double honor. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. it's, 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 it's really, really, really terrific. And during the course of these things, um, you know, I had a, an interesting smorgasbord of cases, you might say, to pick and choose from. I mean, we had drug diversions, we had theft, we had contract fraud, bribery, um, things that happen in, in any major organization or any major, particularly any major hospital in the world. Because you have to remember our hospitals procure everything mm. from the most complex scientific equipment to diapers or candy bars, I mean, and everything in between. And usually they have their own security service. It's like a small city. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, one day I got a call that kind of changed my life. I was uh, sitting in my office and I got a call from actually the chief of psychiatry at the Northport VA Medical Center. And she said, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but, but there's a physician working here treating our veterans and there's a television show that he spent time in jail for poisoning his co-workers now i thought maybe this was like an april food yeah. joke i had to check my calendar and see yeah. if it was april 1st yeah because i said wait how could the government how could a government hire someone to be a physician as in prison for poisoning his co-workers hmm. can't happen well it did happen and that's what started me on this trek where i began conducting investigations throughout the country 
and assisting now throughout the world on medical professionals who murder their patients. When I say murder, I'm not talking about like a Kevorkian, uh-huh. you know, where people are in a lot of pain and they went to him and uh, he uh, assisted their suicide. Yeah. I'm talking about murder. I'm yeah. talking about many times patients who were actually improving only to be murdered by these people. And as you said earlier, and I couldn't have said it better myself, look, the majority of medical professionals are caring, competent, dedicated people. People have really dedicated their lives to helping people. Yeah. You know, and they spend their whole careers helping people. They're just the salt of the earth. So inside that universe of such a wonderful group of people, a great place to hide mm. is someone who doesn't feel that way. Someone who may portray that to their coworkers or the, the patients, but deep down inside, they actually wanna kill patients. And no one, no one is gonna believe this until presented with a mountain of evidence. And even then, even then they find it hard to believe. Yeah. Okay, I mean, look, look recently with this COVID-19. Mm. Look what heroism we saw from our medical professionals, right? Risking their own lives, risking their families' lives by going into work every day to treat patients, all right? And all the accolades they receive are well-deserved. Absolutely. So if you're inside, if you're inserted inside a universe like that, Mm. who's going to believe? Yeah. Who's going to believe that someone is there intentionally to murder patients? Yeah. It's very difficult to fathom. People just don't want to believe it. But we have case after case after case throughout history where where it has happened. You know? Yeah, and and they're they're also protected by not only do people not want to believe it, who wants to take the risk in being the one who makes the accusation? You know, because if you're wrong, you know what? You're spot on today. Yeah. Let, let, let me tell you a story. It's a very interesting story. It was actually in the New York Times, but in papers all over the country, about these two nurses in a place called Kermit, Texas. Now, Kermit, Texas is in the oil basin down there. And let me tell you, it's not easy to get doctors and nurses to work down there. Yeah. You know, when you talk to them, they say, do you know how far we have to go to get nurses here? Why we have to go all the way to the Philippines? Yeah. And you know what? If we ever made friends with North Korea, we may grab some of their <laughs> nurses too. Yeah. Because we can't find people here. Yeah. So there are two nurses there that are actually the entire hospital's compliance department. And they say, you know, we have a really bad doctor here. We think he's harming patients. We think he's violating all the rules. We think he's terrible. Let's go to management. And they go to management and management says, are you kidding me? Do you know how hard it is to find doctors in Kermit, Texas? Why we have to go all the way, you know the story. Go away nurses, go back to your little office and shut up. Yeah. And he said, what do we do now? We went to the management, they poo-pooed us. The nurse says, we have to stop this doctor. We have to stop this doctor. One nurse says, the other nurse, I got an idea. 
let's anonymously, anonymously send a letter to state officials warning the state officials about this doctor. But we won't sign our name, we'll send it anonymously. We send the letter to the state, the state contacts the doctor, and boy, is he pissed, okay? He says, these nurses are trying to ruin my career. They don't know what, what they're talking about. You know, one of the patients I had here in the hospital is the local sheriff. His name is Sheriff Roberts. I'm gonna call Sheriff Roberts up and ask him to help. And I called, he called up Sheriff Roberts. He said, Sheriff Roberts, remember you came in and I helped you when you were sick? Oh yes, doctor, I remember, I remember. Well, I need your help now. These two nurses are trying to destroy my reputation. Can you help me? And, and the sheriff says, sure. So what the sheriff does is he gets a search warrant for their hospital computer, goes into the computer and finds out that they are the ones that anonymously notified the state about what a terrible doctor he is. He takes the case to the prosecutor and the nurses are actually arrested and prosecuted for misuse of official information for trying to save patients from this terrible doctor. It goes to trial. The jury is out for about a half hour. They come back and they say, prosecuted, are you kidding me? These nurses should get a medal for what they did. <laughs> And of course, all the charges were dismissed and the nurses sued. But look at the hell they went through. Yeah. Look at the hell they went through to report a bad doctor. Yeah. So the next nurse that sees the bad doctor, you think she's going to go through that hell? You yeah. think she's going to risk the chance of losing everything? Over yeah. It? I don't think so. <sighs> the nurses throughout the country were in a total uproar over this, as they should be. As they should be. But in some ways, the damage was done. So when a nurse says, you know what? I'm a little afraid to report this nurse. Yeah. You know, I'm a little afraid to do it. And I see this all the time, all the time. Until finally, some people have the courage and it takes courage, courage to come forth and report what they see. Mm. And I'll give you another example of that. That just happened that I did an investigation a couple, about a month ago, brand new case, right? You know, we have all these traveling nurses, okay? Because what happened was New York was under assault from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So we had to get nurses and doctors from all over the country. It was a desperate situation. I get it, I get it. And when you're desperate, you tend to set aside some of the safeguards that you normally have when you have more leisure time. Yeah. You know, when the enemy's coming over the hill, you, you don't have time act. to do a full audit and background investigation. Yeah, no. You send the troops. Yeah, just start shooting. Yeah. About that. yeah. We'll do the war crimes later. Yeah. So most of the traveling nurses that came were outstanding, dedicated people. Well, one nurse, this was an opportunity for her to divert drugs, okay? To steal um, a number of narcotics. And this is what happened. 
she actually would go to where the narcotics are kept, take out a vial, and she had two needle syringes with her. She would extract the drug, keep that, and then insert saline solution and put it back in the drawer. So the real patients were just getting the saline solution. She was getting the narcotics. Eventually, one or two of the nurses noticed that the vials looked tampered with. They came to their supervisor and the rest is, is history here. But then we knew that a lot of nurses actually noticed it, but were afraid to say something. Nurses noticed that this one particular nurse seemed to spend an extraordinarily large amount of time in the narcotics area that seemed to be impaired, but nobody said anything. Yeah. They were all afraid. Now, look, I know this was a crisis situation. Yeah. Patients were coming in like crazy. It wasn't the normal thing. Hospital ship. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, if somebody would have said something earlier, could have made a big, big difference. But I get it. I know it takes courage. But unless people step forward, for the most part, no, you know, it's very difficult. We do all kinds of auditing, all kinds of testing. Many times we catch things, but many times we don't. And we really rely on people to come forth, particularly in the world of medical serial killers. All right, because all the medical serial kill investigations that I've been involved with start with a courageous nurse or doctor who notices something and comes forth and puts his or her career at great risk. You know, in my book, I talk about these nurses um, in Massachusetts, all right? And look, you know what, none of us are perfect. We all have things in our background that we've rather not have. Skeletons. Yeah. Okay. And these nurses knew that maybe it would come out that they had a substance abuse problem. Maybe it would come out that their license wasn't up to snuff as it should be, or they were missing some coursework or something. They knew that, but they came forward. And you know what? They came forward and they were right, and this nurse was murdering people, and she was convicted and sent to prison with three consecutive life sentences, and the thank you she got, the nurses got, who came forward, um, their coworkers say, look what you did to us. This hospital had a great reputation until you came forward and the newspapers came down here and now everybody thinks we're just a bunch of serial killers in this hospital and their life was made hell, hell. What kind of encouragement is that for people who wanna come forward? You know, you're gonna get prosecuted? Are your coworkers gonna give you hell for it? It takes a lot of courage, but thank goodness there's still a lot of people out there with the courage to come forward. That's brutal. That that'd be like that'd be like why did you have to go and tell the allies that we had concentration camps? We used to be Germany. Everyone used to love us. And now you got to shed light on the guy with the mustache and it's like I'm I'm listening to a book about spy planes in Lockheed Martin and one U2 pilot 
like was way way north of Russia. This is a year before Francis Gary Powers, and he was looking through his viewfinder and he spotted a nuclear bomb on top of a tower as he was going over it. And one, he was like, "Oh my God, I'm about to be vaporized." But two, he was like, "We had no we had no clue this was here." Like he was sent to follow up on. I guess leads CIA leads, but he found this one in northern uh, in the northern Soviet Union. I was like, oh my god, almost died. They detonated it two hours after he went over. He came back and showed the 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 reel to the the CIA station chief. He was like, you idiot. There's no nuke there. And he was so he's sitting there going, I thought I was a hero. And so they send it to Langley, and Langley goes, "You idiot! Are you? You're wasting film." And finally, it comes back and went to the head of the CIA. And finally, he gets like a private call, and he was like, "Thank you for your service, sir." And so finally, it came out. But yeah, it's the same thing. You you do this thing, and you're like, "Okay, I'm gonna risk myself for the for the betterment of everyone." And not only do they not like it, they actively go against you. Yeah, it's that's brutal. Now you said she was. So when you when you started the story, I thought it was just a drug abuser, or she was selling it that she was taking the syringe fulls. You said charged with murdering. So was it not just painkillers? No, 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 don't don't confuse okay. this okay. story. Okay, okay, okay. No, that's a separate. That's just okay. The, that story was just a, a drug story. Okay, and she'll be charged with the drug aspect. The second story involves a medical serial killer. So this traveling okay. nurse okay. was not a murderer. Okay, he was just a drug diverter. Okay. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this is, um, and you see this in a, particularly a lot of fraud that's going on in the country right now, when you drop the standards, and I understand, you know, it was a pandemic, I get it, but when you drop the safeguards, you know, when, when you remove them, because you feel you have to, inevitably, there will be people that take advantage of it. And then after the smoke clears, you'll realize what's happening, what, what's going on. You know, I don't know if you saw in the paper, um, you know, a lot of people are on um, unemployment uh, insurance because of what happened. You know, mm -hmm. I get it. And the states were pumping out unemployment money like it's going out of style. And of course, well-meaning, all these programs are well-meaning. Yeah, yeah. So recently there's been articles in the newspaper about all this fraud that's going on involving unemployment insurance. And what's happening is that people are pretending they're you because they got a hold of your social security number and date of birth and collecting unemployment insurance unbeknownst to you in your name. And this is going on all over the country right now. So why did this happen? Because some of the safeguards, some of the walls that had been set up originally. So when you applied for unemployment insurance, you had to go through all those loops and hoops and, and everything. They were all set aside to get the money out fast. Mm. So when, when, when you drop your controls, you're gonna have to put aside money for the fraud yeah. because I guarantee you it's gonna happen. Man. Whether it be the nurses, whether it be a financial fraud or whether it even unfortunately be murder. Yeah. You know, I still haven't gotten my stimulus check. I'm starting to think <laughs> so. As soon as you're saying that, the gears started turning. I was like, oh, no. There's someone's yeah. someone out there is being Tommy Kerrigan, and they're just sitting on like a thousand stimulus checks. Um, 
So in, in one hospital in New York, um, a number of, well, actually more than one hospital, a number of hospitals in New York, a number of physicians started getting correspondence from the Department of Labor saying that they were the recipients of unemployment insurance to their surprise because they were still gainfully employed. They never applied for unemployment insurance and the kind of salaries they make. They wouldn't was, have, yeah. You know, not even a, an issue. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so why, why have the hospitals been hit? I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, now you were, you were going to, there was going to be um, an international meeting, I believe, and it was, I'm trying to remember the exact date. I think it was supposed to be March 20th. Was that correct? Yeah, yeah, March 21st, I think it was. Um, you know, uh, this was a real personal heartbreak for me because we had put a lot of time and effort into it. We had in investigators and medical professionals from all over the world, all over the world, due to fly into the John Jay College of Criminal Justice for the first ever yeah. first international conference on medical serial murders. And we had the federal judge as the keynote speaker who had sentenced one of these murderers to, after a six month long trial, you can imagine the stories that he yeah, had. Yeah, yeah. All right, and then the COVID-19 came oh. and the university closed down and- uh, I had it in my calendar. But my, my a lot of my family is right up in and around New York City. My mom and I were planning on heading up, and it was. I had it in my calendar. I was like, I'm gonna have him on. We're gonna. I'm gonna have him on right after. I'm gonna have him tell his stories, and it was supposed to be. And as it started, I was like, Oh no, oh no! And like, I was almost hesitant to text you. I was like, I bet. I was like, I bet he's not even mad. I bet he's just heartbroken. And I, I feel it, man. I don't because I don't know, but it's with a tremendous amount of work, as you can imagine, bringing in people from all over the oh, country, can't even imagine. of making the schedule. You know, we had the university behind us. We were going to have the NYPD chief of detectives as a speaker. I mean, we had the whole thing lined up and then look, but I'm not the only person that has this tale of woe. There are a lot of conferences. Yeah, all over, all over the, yeah. Yeah. Whenever, yeah. whenever I start to Tell and my we don't own. even know when we could put this back together again because yeah. we're not even sure yeah. when people are going to be comfortable sitting in the same room like well, this. Well, it seems like there's yeah. a second wave starting right now. Apple stores are starting to close again in the U.S. China has been closing down the universities. It's just deja vu. It's happening again. Oh, man. It's, it, yeah, it's, yeah, whenever I start to, to complain about my COVID woes, I'm like, it, who can I tell that would have any sympathy? It's like, what do you think I'm doing, man? <laughs> I'm locked at home too. So it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, you know, there's, there's, everything happens again, for a that's reason. What I'm, again, our medical professionals are heroes. Yeah. They're heroes for going in and, Absolutely. and helping us and working with us. So, when, and you know, we see this in so many professions. I mean, I believe that the overwhelming majority of police and first responders are heroes. Absolutely. But in any profession, you're going to have some really bad people. Yeah. And uh, in the medical profession, as with any profession, the overwhelming majority are just so outstanding. But unfortunately, you know, every month or so, you read a story about some medical professional who um, does some terrible things to people. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that was one thing I wanted to ask you. So, well, I've got a bunch of questions from people, but uh, we'll do those in like 15 minutes. We'll save those for the last half hour. Um, do you think that there are similar traits in right now, June 20th, 2020, that we are seeing with the the backlash against police off for the record no i don't think we should defund the police i think that's a moronic i think that's a moronic thing. but hey that's why this country is great as you're allowed to hold your own opinions but not to go off on that tangent do you think that there are some similarities in that just like it's a terrible thing because it's not only are these serial killers in the medical profession but they are taking advantage of the the angel-like, you know, the doing God's work nature of these people. I mean, I have a lot of friends from college that are now doctors, and it's, if they aren't the smartest, most kind, respectful people who could have gone off to make millions in anything, and it's like, some of them have literally said, I believe it's like my purpose on earth to help people, and it's like, God, like, you are awesome. And it's, these serial killers take advantage of that, just like, just like in Mogadishu, the combatants would have kids on them, so you can't shoot them. Do you think that there's a similarity or could there be um, a recurring or overlapping pattern with law enforcement? You have these guys, here's a guy that's taking a salary that's nothing to write home about. He goes out every day, has to deal with assholes, and potentially can just get killed one day. And then after doing all of that, there's someone, there is a bad cop, and it's, do you really want to be the one to accuse the cop and be like, hey, you asshole? And it's like, dude, do you know what sacrifices that guy or woman makes for like, his community for not a lot of money? But then you can have these bad guys who, you know, I've had police officers on here have said, the, was it the officer Chauvin, Chauvin, that killed George Floyd? They're like, that was a bad guy. But it's, they can hide behind this mask of all of these incredibly selfless people. Do you think there's any similarity in that? Am I making sense? Yes, totally. Totally. I, I, I think that. Um, look, what better way to camouflage yeah. a killer than to be inserted in a group of angels? Exactly. I mean. You know, um, but, you know, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because I often get asked the question, do you think these people were like killers before they went into the profession or something happened and turned them. And I think that many of them did have some issues in their past, but I don't think, with, with exception, with exception that most of them were killers, I think just something happened in their personal, professional lives during the course of their career that um, enabled them to do this, to get away with it. And then some actually enjoyed it. Some actually enjoyed having the power of life and death over an individual. And if you ask yourself, look, if you're going to be a serial killer, what professions might you want to masquerade yourself as? Well, what professions have the legal power of life and death over an individual? Certainly a police officer and a medical professional. You know, look, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, so do I think that these people that have a proclivity to murder join these professions intentionally? I don't think so. I don't think so. But I do think that something happens in their personal, professional lives at the time they're on the job. They may come in with the best of intentions and things change, 
and they change and uh, they just can't handle it. And then the way that they handle it is by killing people. Yeah. That's what, what, what I, I've, I've seen a lot. Now, it's interesting because a number of medical serial killers, you know, and people always ask, well, what's the motivation? Why do these people do this? Okay. And a number of them throughout the world, I mean, from the U.S., there was a nurse in Germany that was convicted of killing over 100 patients. And they, most of them, or many of them, suffer from this um, condition called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And what that is, is Munchausen syndrome is a person would intentionally harm themselves and then go into a hospital to seek attention. Mm. I, to have somebody actually seem to care for them because they're not, they're not getting that. Munchausen syndrome by proxy, we sometimes see when a, a mom or a dad will actually intentionally harm a child then bring the child in the hospital to show the staff what a caring parent they are, how they're so concerned about the child when they actually had harmed the child themselves. And that's Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And what we find that a number of medical serial killers, when you look in their evaluations, you see that they're like, okay, doctors, okay, nurses, except when it comes to a code. And what I mean a code is, is someone goes into cardiac arrest code blue, and the bells and whistles go off and the crash card comes in and people come running in. They crave the excitement of the code mm. and they want to show the staff that they're the hero. Mm. They'll take charge of that code. They'll start barking orders to the young interns who are scared shitless and don't know what to do, okay? Well, I've had people say to me, you know, that nurse you're talking about, Bruce? Are you kidding me? If I ever coded, I want her to be there. She knows what she's doing. She takes charge. She's outstanding. And when you look in their evaluations, the one outstanding they get uh, is when it's time for a code and they uh, show off to the staff how good they are of course they put the person in the code to begin with okay and if the person loses the dies they really couldn't give a shit because it's all about them it's, all, uh, it's what the excitement does for them it's what the excitement does for them now this cop when he had his knee on this guy's throat yeah I don't know if he was sure, because remember, he was surrounded by newbies. Guys had only been on the job like a, a week or two. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he was their training officer. Oh, no. So is he showing off to them, see, I'm such a badass that this is how I, I is handle this how I guy. roll, yeah. Is this... Okay. So is there a, a similarity there? It could be, because I never like to play psychiatrist, because I'm not a yeah. psychiatrist. Yeah. All right? I've talked to a lot of them, but I don't have any MDs, PhDs. <laughs> on my business card, all yeah. right? But this is what I've seen all over the world. I spent time, you know, with the detectives in Germany, in London. I, I've been to the Middle East on this. I've been, uh, you know, uh, Scotland Yard. I mean, I, I've, I've been to these places. We, we talk about these things. And the number one reason, the motivation, or whatever you want to call it, seems to be this Munchausen syndrome by proxy, craving the excitement of the code and showing off to the world what an excellent nurse or doctor you are. 
all right? Jesus. And we, we see this many, many times. There was a nurse in Canada that did this, a nurse in Japan that did this. And these are the ones we catch because they're very, very hard to catch. Yeah. Very hard to catch and very hard to prove because a couple of times in a couple of countries, they, they, they tried and failed to successfully prosecute these people. It's very, very difficult. Look, if you're a patient, when I was at the VA, you know, there were a lot of seniors there that had a lot of things wrong with them. Before electronic medical records, I remember I looked in one vet's medical records. His file was like this thick. I said, gee, I didn't know you could be alive. <laughs> yeah, right. Things wrong with you. And now I'm going to prove somebody murdered him. Any one of these things could have killed this guy. Okay. So it's very, very difficult to prove these murder cases. Very, very difficult. Because you have a staff that usually doesn't want to cooperate. You have people with many underlying ailments that could have actually resulted in their deaths. It could have been a hospital infection. I could go on and on and on with this stuff. Some of the toughest cases to make, and in fairness to investigators around the world, sometimes they've been unsuccessful. Sometimes there was a nurse in, in Italy, all right? She was so bold and so brazen that after she murdered the patient, she would take a selfie of herself and the patient and post it. Holy shit. All right? Holy shit. She was not convicted. She was acquitted. It's very, very difficult cases to make. All right? I don't know any investigator in the world that could say they made every one of them because sometimes you just can't do it. And a lot of times, even with today's modern science, it's very difficult to prove. I'll give you an example. There was, in my book, in behind the murder curtain, there's a story about Nurse Richard Williams. Available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Nurse Richard Williams allegedly, that's the key word here, killed about 60 of our nation's heroes. Okay. The FBI, had, to their credit, had tried and tried their best to um, get this guy arrested, couldn't do it. Years later, we came in and we took a look and we thought we got him. He was actually indicted on 13 counts of murder. And the murder weapon, we believe, was this drug called succinylcholine, which is a paralytic, which they give you if they want to put a tube down you. Mm-hmm. If it's not used properly, you'll die. Um, and we found traces of that drug in people that should have never had that drug. And we believed he was the murderer. And then all of a sudden, the science turned out bad. The science turned out that we couldn't really prove that the succinylcholine was the cause of death because the test for succinylcholine in embalmed tissue turned out to be unreliable. So this guy was released. He's not in the healthcare business anymore, but he's he's still out there. And you know something interesting? After he left the VA, he went to work at a nursing home and a number of people died unexpectedly at the nursing home. What? <laughs> so with all my successes throughout the world, yeah, I have one myself that I that he still keeps me up at night that yeah. I couldn't prove. And this is true all over the world, like that nurse in Italy, 
there was a nurse also in England that they they could improve, or, or one in um, one of the Scandinavian countries. It's very difficult to prove. Very, very difficult. You know, and the interesting another difference between your traditional serial killer and your medical serial killers. Traditional serial killers. Maybe if there is an average number of seven, eight people, maybe they kill. They're amateurs compared to my medical serial killers. The average kills somewhere between 30 and uh, 50, 60 people. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Nurse Gilbert in, um, in Massachusetts killed about 30 people that we know of. Uh, Michael Swango, the doctor on Long Island, yeah. killed at least 60 people all over the world. The nurse in Germany killed over 100 people over the world. So, you know, like the Green River Killer or this River Killer or that killer. I mean, they're all terrible, but most of them, the numbers are pretty low. Medical serial killers, the numbers are all very high. All very high. Because it's so easy to get away with it. Especially, look, if you're in the intensive care unit. Yeah there's a fair chance that you're not going to make it anyway. So if you're in the ICU and somebody dies in the ICU, is that going to be a red flag? No, it's, it's, are, it's not par for the course. Flag. Man, right? if, if you really wanted to be a serial killer, go on combat medicine. You know, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, in, in my, in my, in, in the book, I, I quote, it's a very interesting story about that. This guy was a medic in World War II, and he said to no, he was actually a physician. I was a physician in World War II in, in, in Asia, and he said, you know, if the Japanese soldiers come in here, I'm going to kill them, he says. I don't care if I am a doctor. For what they're doing to the American boys, I'm going to kill them. And then the Japanese soldiers came in all wounded and tore up, and he said, you know what? I couldn't do it. He says, I just couldn't kill them. He says... They look as sad and pathetic as the American yeah. boys. He says, I wound up helping them. Yeah. He said, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. But if he had a different attitude, who would really care? Yeah. <laughs> who would really say anything? Yeah. Have, have you yeah. ever, have you ever, have you ever um, heard of Unit 731 in Japan during World War II? Yeah. Yes. The, yes. They, 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 that was like their version of Dr. Mengele. They put the Nazis to shame. Yeah. Holy cow. Their main guy, Ishii, who was studied serology and virology, was like a brilliant guy. They killed something like 70,000 Japanese citizens. Just, oh my God. It's Jocko Willink, uh, the na- former Navy SEAL, uh, his podcast, Jocko Podcast, he, does a, he has an episode on Unit 731. I've read the book that he that he talks about, and I've also listened to his po- his podcast. Him talking about the book is better than the book. I'll I'll make sure to link that in here as well. All right, thank you. Yeah, it it got me thinking. Do you think that there's an aspect to this that it's so you know they probably don't go into this to be a serial killer? I mean, who in their right mind? I was pre med and got into medical school, and I didn't even go. Can you imagine who in their right mind would go through medical school and residency to be a serial killer? <laughs> like, you know, there's easier ways to do it. I don't think that's the intent. Exactly. I really don't. Exactly. I think things happen 
you know, some things have happened before they went into school. I think it's a gradual process. Absolutely. Just like I don't think, uh, you know, that that police officer that put his knee on that guy's throat joined the police department to be a murderer. I yeah. don't think that. Yeah. But I think things happen in the course of the profession. Things happen in his private life. Things happen that just kind of drove him over the edge. Yeah. You know? And then look, in fairness to him, and I have this argument with everybody, I know what the video shows and all, but I'm of the old school that I want to hear all sides of the story before I hang somebody. I mean, they they want to hang this guy just based on the prosecution without hearing the defense. Can yeah. I at least hear the defense and yeah. then hang the guy? Yeah, come on. We Even the Nazis got trials. Yeah, I mean, I at least want to hear what, what the other side is before I throw the switch on the electric chair. Yeah. You know, I mean, but people want to hang them and then have the trial. Yeah. So I don't think is really the, the Mob right mentality is a dangerous thing. That is a dangerous <laughs> thing. If you want to take down a statue, have the city vote on it and take it down democratically. You tear it down. But it's the first thing ISIS did. They blew up all the Buddhist statues. They erased the old history. It, it's yeah. never good. No. Um, so about unit 731 in Mengele do you think that there and this is a hypothetical and couldn't actually be answered if it could be that means we're in a terrible place do you think that these doctors if you could just duplicate this universe and and run a run a test against a, a control group do you think a lot of these serial killing doctors and nurses would continue to do it if they were in something like unit 731 or Mengele where they are openly allowed to do whatever they want, do you think part of it is getting away with it in an area where they're not allowed to? Would yeah, they get it and be like, I don't even want it anymore? I do I do think that because that's not going to give them the opportunity to shine. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. And, and you know what? Also, a number of them, and there's, there's, there's a one a famous serial medical serial killer, his name is Donald Harvey. The, the Donald, as we call him, not the <laughs> The Donald, and um, he killed people um, in VA hospitals and private hospitals. And he has this very famous quote. He says, "Well, you know," he says, "After I killed the first eighteen, and nobody questioned me, I started to think I was ordained by the Almighty Himself to do this." And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's not so irrational. If you kill 18 people and nobody nothing happens, you, maybe you are on the <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe you are untouchable. <laughs> yes. And you know what? When I, when I first heard it, I mean, I was, but then I'm thinking about it. I'm saying, the first how many? The first, yeah, man. 18 people. And he also killed, I don't know, 50, 60. You know what? Medical serial killers kill so many people. That even when they cooperate, they can't remember themselves how many people they kill. That's that can't even remember themselves. Some do, some don't. All right. Disgusting. It was a guy named Efren Zaldabar, Zandabar, I forgot what his name was, who was on the West Coast. He was a respiratory therapist. He killed a load of people, confessed, and then he recanted his confession. Haha, I'm only kidding. So the cops had to go out and and proved that he actually did kill these people. Then eventually, he like reconfessed, and then he says, uh, 
Well, I can't remember. I don't remember everybody. I, I, I just can't. I killed so many people, I don't even remember who they were. So that guy, that was like, that guy was like super getting his satisfaction. Exactly. Admitting to it and then get, still getting away with it. That yeah. guy was just having a field day. I'll go ahead and prove it. You know, look, oh just because God. I can confess to anything. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I actually did it because false confessions occur all the time. Yeah. So you as a detective have to go out and prove that I did it. And if you can't prove that I did it and there's no evidence that I did it other than my confession, that's not that's not going to work. Not only that, if, if these guys, you know, the Munchausen syndrome by proxy, it feels like this could be in that same kind of vein or, or flavor, if you will, for them to then be reinstated and keep working and be like, look, these guys are coming after me, but I, you know, stand tall and I'm not going to, I'm not going to take a knee to these like evil prosecutors. I am a doctor. Hey, look, not only the prosecutors, but let's talk about the hospital management. Yeah. This is also true throughout the world, throughout the world. Staff complains to the, the management and the management says, well, you know, what proof do you have that this guy, Bruce Ackman, is a serial killer? Well, you know what? Every time Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Bruce takes a day off, the death rate goes down. Bruce goes on vacation, the death rate goes down. Bruce comes back, the death rate goes up. Is that it? Maybe. Is that the only evidence you have? You know, I mean, maybe, maybe possibly there's some other things that are going on at the same time. Just you know, like, uh, like an epidemic, pandemic. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a... Uh, an infection going around, maybe there's something, maybe it's just coincidence. I mean, is that your only problem? I want to ask you a question. Did you ever see this guy, Bruce, actually kill anybody? Well, no, I've never actually seen him kill anybody. I'm just saying that every time he's on So maybe that's just a cool. Maybe he's working the shifts and the hours when people die a lot. Yeah. All right? So people get really frustrated with management and management will bend over backwards to defend, defend the person being accused for a number of reasons. And they'll come out with something that, like this. Well, they'll say, oh, thank you, Tom, for uh, bringing this matter to our attention. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna appoint the board of our very best um, medical professionals here, and we'll review some of the cases and we'll get back to you. Thank you very much. And that's what they do, they appoint all people employed at the hospital, none of who are trained in forensics, okay, to look at the cases and see, could these patients have died from one or more of their underlying disease processes? Well, of course they could have. And when you look at the, um, the, the death certificates, interestingly enough, the death certificates all say they died of myocardial infarction or some kind of heart-related ailment, which eventually all our hearts will go out if yeah. they're dead. And so then I'll return to you and I'll say, well, thank you, and there's Tom for bringing this to our attention. This is what we did. You know, we put together a panel of our very best experts. They looked at these cases. In fact, on some occasions, even autopsies were performed, and we came to the conclusion that all of these patients deserve, um, died as a result of one or more of their disease processes. Thank you very much for bringing this to our attention and have a nice day. 
Now, the autopsy that they talk about is not a forensic autopsy like you see on television, where they're actually looking for a murder weapon. It's just a confirmatory autopsy, which hospitals don't even do anymore because nobody wants to pay for it, you know, saying, um, could the person have died from one or more of their underlying disease processes? Yes. Close them up. Case closed. Okay. And it's very, very frustrating. So now you're told that this nurse, Bruce Sackman, even though every time he's on duty, patients die unexpectedly. Patients who are even healthy die unexpectedly. But you're told by your own management, go away. And if you keep going back, they'll say, hey, Tom, what's the matter? You don't like working here? Yeah. Trying to do close down the hospital? You know, if the yeah. word gets out that we have somebody killing somebody, you're going to be out of a job. I'm going to be out of a job. The lawsuits, do you know what's going to happen here? If you don't like working here, Tom, we looked into it. Go find a job somewhere else. Will you? Yeah. yeah, we can transfer you. All over the world. This is not just, you know, in the wonderful world of U.S. capitalism. I mean, this is all over the world. We've seen this. My detective's friend in Germany, he tell me the same story. You know, we there's a nurse that was in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, named Cullen, Nurse Cullen. Nurse Cullen traveled from hospital to hospital to hospital to hospital. When the first hospital suspected Nurse Cullen of some wrongdoing, they never called the police. They allowed Nurse Cullen to get a job in another hospital and moved on to another hospital. He was like seven or eight hospitals until finally some nurse came forward and, and helped the police catch him. But all these hospitals had suspected something, but Hospital One never said anything to Hospital two that never said anything in the hospital three and why do they defend these people because they're afraid of getting sued it's very exactly. difficult to prove exactly so you know if you call bruce sackman a serial killer i'm going to sue your ass off man. Exactly. you don't have any proof of that just because when i'm on duty people die it happens all over the place you know oh man i'm going to sue you i'm going to ruin the reputation of this place i'm going to do everything oh don't do that bruce. Don't, don't, don't do that good lord that is that is dirty I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna write down the timestamp and edit this out. I need to go use the restroom real quick. I'll be back in in one one minute. One minute. Eighteen minutes left. Jump on some of those questions. Let's let's do it. Let's get to it. So I will. Yeah. So on the serial killer subreddit, and unlike most guests, you are actually familiar with Reddit. That's how I met you. So yes, I am. Um, <laughs> I had uh, I posted it, and actually the. Shout out to the moderator, Buck Rowdy, for uh, pinning it to the top of that subreddit so I could get some questions from people. So, some of these usernames are inappropriate, so I won't read who said it, but let's see. <laughs> okay. Question one. Do you have information regarding the incidence of serial killers among medical providers versus the general population? So, yeah. How, what, how often versus just your general serial killer versus what is, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I understand the question, but um, now I, I don't have an answer. I don't know if anybody has an answer because just like it's very difficult to identify serial killers anywhere in the hospital, it's very, very difficult. But I can give you some of the numbers that are out there. I don't know what the numbers of known serial killers in the world are, but the number of identified medical serial killers 
is about 175. I've seen some data that looks like that. Now, if there are more serial killers uh, outside of the hospital, I don't know. You know, I, I, I never really looked at the numbers, but um, I'll put it to you this way. My fear is, particularly in the hospitals, that there have been many, many more murders than I even have the slightest idea of. Maybe not multiple murders, but certainly, um, certainly murders. You know, there was a story about a uh, a, a home in Texas. Let me, let me see if I have this here, sure. so I could. So yeah. Oh well, I can't really see it, but there was there was a, there was a, a a story in the newspapers about um, a home in Texas where. Um, the administrator of the home had um, instructed the staff that um, patients who funding was no longer available for them, uh, we had to make room in the hospital, oh, and you know how to make room in the hospital for them. All right, that was oh, just a case in Texas. All right, um, so is it is that happening all the time? I certainly don't think so. But has it happened? I mean. I just don't know, you know, and numbers are a funny thing. You can play with the numbers all the time, but Get what you want, yeah. You know, my fear is that there are a lot more murders in the medical world than have been reported or identified. That's just my feeling doing this for so many years. But I don't like to throw out numbers because I don't know if they're accurate and inaccurate. Okay. You know? Well, I, yeah. Well, I, I think that's. That's an honorable way to answer that because nowadays so many people just give an answer just to give an answer. It's ten million. Just it's yeah, better I mean, to I admit don't, you don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows. Yeah. Okay. Here's another one, a little long-winded question. We often hear that long-haul truck drivers have an ideal profession for serial killing. Conversely, we hear little about travel or per diem nurses and other travel providers. Do you have information on the incidence of serial killers among traveling medical providers versus other providers and or versus truck drivers? I think you kind of touched on that with your traveling nurses, COVID, New York. I did, although I myself have never investigated a medical serial killer who was a traveler. I have investigated medical serial killers who stayed at a hospital for a limited amount of time, then got a job at another hospital and then another, but not some that just traveled for short assignments back and forth. Now, drug diversion, yes. Yes, I was actually involved, as I mm -hmm. told you earlier, about a drug diversion case. But could it happen? Yeah, of course it, uh, of course it could happen. You know, just as easily as if they're employed there, but for some reason, in the history of cases that I've been either personally involved or read about, I'm not aware of any travelers that were identified or prosecuted as medical serial killers, but it could certainly have happened. <sighs> Whew, all right. Do you have, question three, do you have information? Oh, you know Let me just get oh, sure. to No, that. absolutely. You know, something interesting about travelers is that unless there's a pandemic, when you're new on the job, you know, people tend to watch you a little bit more. 
So they may not, you know, they may feel that they're being watched, but if you've been there a while and everybody knows you and you've kind of actually saved lives Mm. and you've established yourself as a caring, compassionate healthcare giver, people are not gonna accept so fast that you did something wrong. But if you're brand new, like this nurse that stole the drugs, if you're brand new, you're gonna watch. They're, they're gonna watch you and things are gonna pop up. But if they have a high comfort level with you because you've been there for months or maybe even years, it's much easier to get away with it then. It's like how Jerry Sandusky got away with all that molesting. That's he's, a very good he's, uh, Here he yeah. is, yeah, here he is helping these orphaned kids at us, you know? Exactly. It's it, like, like you said earlier, it's what better way. It's almost there's almost some like poetic nature to it. It's like, wasn't Satan an angel, of a outcast from heaven, or banned from heaven? Right? It's like what better way? They man, the demon hides amongs the angels. It's, yes. so yeah. Um, okay, yeah, number three. Do you have information regarding any correlations between medical serial killers and domestic violence within their homes? Or can that yeah, there have been there actually have been some cases of that. Um, again, in the book, there's a story of Nurse Kristen Gilbert. Nurse Kristen Gilbert attempted to uh, kill her husband. I'd call that violence in the home, you know. And she said fires and uh, called in bomb threats and did all kinds of uh, crazy things. And it's interesting, even though she had attempted to poison her husband, and he knew this. Um, when it came to um, sentencing, he could not testify against her when we went for the death penalty, which she did not get. And I, I could talk about that a little bit too. But um, he said, you know what? She's still the mother of my children. Yeah. And I can't testify against her when it comes to her possibly, you know, getting the death penalty. So now, why the death penalty? Well, let's talk about this a little bit. Sure. All right, this was my second death penalty case. Um, under federal law, if you commit a murder on a federal reservation, like an army base or a VA hospital, that's a federal crime. You see, if you commit murder in the, in the local hospital, that's not a murder is not a federal crime. Murder is it's a state crime. Murder is only a federal crime if committed on the exclusive territory of the United States. So VA hospitals actually come in three flavors. One is the exclusive territory of the United States, like an army base, that's mm-hmm. some VA hospitals. Some have concurrent jurisdiction, which means you could be tried either by the state or by the feds. It's concurrent, it could go either way. And the last one is called proprietorial, which means the state has primary jurisdiction, which was in the case of Richard Williams in Missouri, the one who got away. That was a state case, okay. So in, uh, in, in Massachusetts, in the Kristen Gilbert case, that hospital had concurrent jurisdiction, so we tried her in the federal court. After she was found guilty of m- multiple murders, there was a second trial to determine whether she actually should get the death penalty or not. Now that's in a state, Massachusetts, that has no death penalty. All right, But because the crime occurred on the federal jurisdiction, now all of a sudden the citizens of Massachusetts in a non-death penalty state had to decide a death penalty case. Now, honestly, 
and I can speak for everybody involved in the investigation and prosecution team, we really were not looking for the death penalty here. We were required by law to present evidence as to why she should get the death penalty. But we weren't cheering for it because we know she was a mom. She had two young kids. Mm -hmm. If she had been executed, she would have been the first woman to be executed in the federal system since Ethel Rosenberg, the atomic uh -huh. bomb spot. Yeah. Okay. So we had this mini trial, it's a mini trial, where um, we presented to the same jury that found her guilty, we presented evidence as to why she should get the death penalty. And the press was brutal to us. They said we were like Nazis. Yeah. Like, you know, thirsty. to hang this woman in the town square. Meanwhile, if she killed your father, you might want to hang her in the town square. But let's just put that aside for a second, okay? Um, but the prosecution was very professional and they made a very good argument. And the jury came back, they said, no death penalty. And we were actually kind of happy. We were kind of happy, but to read the press account and the defense accounts, you would think we were right out of the Third Reich. I mean, they were just brute. Fake news, I suppose, yeah. is something safer because let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. We did not feel that way, but we were doing our job. Yeah. It, and the jury did their job. So she got three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Well, an interesting story about her. And she goes down to jail in Texas. Do you remember a uh, squeaky from? Squeaky Fromm was one of Charles Manson's people who tried to kill President Ford. Squeaky Fromm is in the same prison with Kristen Gilbert. I'm sitting in my office one day and one of my agents come running in and they go, Dr. Bruce, Dr. Bruce. They always call, I'm not a doctor, but they call me Dr. Bruce. It's like he prosecuted so many. They yeah. say, Dr. Bruce, Dr. Bruce, did you see today's New York Post? I said, no. There's an article inside the New York Post that said, Kristen Gilbert in a quote caged heat affair with none other than Squeaky Fromm in prison. So out of all the people to pick for her girlfriend, she picked Squeaky Fromm because she could get in the newspapers again. She could get attention again, even when she's in prison. <laughs> Striving for attention so much. And you know what? I got it because I interviewed her father. And I asked the father about how she was growing up and all he was talking about lack of discipline and this and you know, and, and she doesn't discipline her kids right and she never had the right discipline and discipline and discipline. I'm going, oh brother, I can see why this one turned out the way she did. Oh man. So, you know, didn't get the attention from dad. Yeah. And she's still looking for attention either through Munchausen syndrome by prop or now in the prison with Squeaky Fromm out of all the people she picked as her girlfriend. It was Squeaky Fromm. Good you lord. Know? You know, when I was like six years old, I I was at a friend's house and I I I dialed nine one one and then just dropped the phone and like ran to the next room. This was like nineteen ninety five. And the the cops came to the house. And you know my, my my mom was there. Me and all my brothers it was like a play date, and I had to go. The 
figured out it was me i was probably beat red and i had to go apologize to police officer you know he's trying to teach me a lesson he's like you know you really can't do this because there might be people that are in need and he's like so just you know what you know why did you do just you know probably curious i said that i did it so that he would come so i could apologize for doing it that was what (laughs) maybe that was my maybe that was my six-year-old munchausen proxy i want i ruined it so you could come here and i could apologize and show you how how noble i am at six well, I think we can forgive you one time. We'll but let that. We'll get that one purged. What? Let it happen. I don't want to hear again. You're doing this now. I, don't want to I got it out of my system. Luckily, oh, I didn't. Okay. Now I'm just. Now I'm getting my attention through creating a podcast, right, not serial good. killing. So hey, that's it's a good one. Um, <laughs> I know I said we'd be finished by ten, but we still got like ten more questions to go. Can we? Can we work through these questions? Um, I can give you a few more minutes. Okay. Okay. I- okay. We'll get through. We'll, we'll go through quick. Okay. The Murder Accountability Project has applied algorithmic study to unsolved murders to identify activity suggesting that blah, 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 that there are currently 1,000 uncaught, still living serial killers in the U.S. That, that, that does not necessarily mean that they're active. What do you think? Like, what is the information suggesting the same about medical serial killers? You kind of addressed that earlier. You said you, there's no way to know. There's no way to know. The 1,000 number came from, you know, is that. I don't even know where, where that came from. Uh, you know, it's look, an algorithm, so some equation. Whatever. No, I, 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 I don't have an answer. <laughs> okay. okay. If I did, I, I would just be pulling it out of my rear end because yeah. I absolutely have no idea. Well, hey, that's that's. I think that's the best answer to say. Hey, I don't. I don't know. That's the best. Uh-huh. I, that's the best answer. Um, let's see we kind of touched on this one it's about murder by poisoning um you talked you talked about that you also talked about that in the first podcast how that is, yeah, that you know is. What? Uh, I'll, I'll ask you if you was this um do they know what the definition of poisoning is the definition of poisoning is too much of anything yeah too much okay. water yes there's hydro poisoning yeah <laughs> you know make your so brain expand anything, uh, particularly too much of the drug that you're actually being prescribed to take sure all right so yes poisoning is as a matter of fact arsenic generations ago used to be known as widow's powder because (laughs) if you had a husband that used to come home and beat the crap out of you every day a little arsenic now and then would cure that problem. Spoonful of arsenic. So it's known as widow's power or inheritance powder. Because <laughs> we're going to get that inheritance after you put the poison in them. And many times deserved, I hate to say. Probably, but. Come drunk and beat the crap out of their wives. And, you know. Hey, goes around, comes around, I guess. That was the way they used to handle it back then. We handle it differently now. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. They used to, yeah, they used to. You know, Michael Swango, Dr. Swango, he um, he spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. He sprinkled arsenic on their donuts. And then when they all got sick, he would call them up and want them to go in great detail about how they suffered, what their symptoms were, and all of that. Getting off on he, it. He murdered people. He would call up the families and tell the families in great detail what the last 30 minutes of their dad's life was, how they suffered, how they were in pain, all of this, because he wanted to relive the experience more than once. One time actually poisoning people, the second time hearing from them 
or telling their families about the suffering. He wanted to get a double bang out of uh, out of his poisoning. So yeah, poisoning um, poisoning is a terrible thing. How, that's dark. So we already won. We already. So this is kind of the same thing. That's a redundant question. Have you heard the theory that most unsolved murders are committed by women? Do you believe that that's true? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I <laughs> no comment. It, would it surprise me? Yeah, I mean, look. At this point, nothing would surprise me, but I don't know how you could get a statistic. Uh, if the murder's unsolved, then how do you know it, who actually committed the murder? It, so um, I don't know, but I mean, I guess people could play with statistics in any way they want, but um, you know, look, poisoning by definition is non-confrontational, all right? It's not like me and you had a fist fight and then I gave you poison and you die, all right? Poison is very quiet, you know? I didn't hear any yelling, I yeah. didn't hear any screaming, you know? So poisoning, I think historically, has been a weapon of choice for women, but I'm not gonna go out on a limb and say that, uh, yeah. you know, they have any exclusive rights yeah. to that. Hey man, CIA and KGB, I think they'd like to have a word about uh, exclusivity. Poisoning is an equal opportunity weapon. It is. It, all, all sexes, races, and creeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have a friend who's a, a black doctor, and he's like, you know what I like about COVID? It's an equal opportunity killer. <laughs> yeah. I think poison is too. Yeah. In terms of, quote, being emotionless or having no remorses, who do you believe is the biggest threat to society? So I think, again, I think we touched on that. It's these people hiding amongst the angels. I, I, I think so. I'm okay. Definitely. Okay. Um, skipping ahead. So we see so much about serial killers from the 20th century or sooner, but or sorry, we don't see a lot about serial killers in the 20th century or earlier. Do you think it's because of improvements in forensic science? And I would add, with digital medical records as well as digital crime records. Do you think there's... Yeah, there, there are a few celebrated cases if, if you want to do the research going Jack back, the but they're very, very few and far between. Remember, the first doctor to ever be successfully prosecuted as a serial killer in England uh, wasn't until the 90s, 1990s, not 1890s. So do you mean to tell me there's never been a doctor serial killer in England before that? Yeah, I find that a little bit difficult to believe. This guy was Harold Shipman. Harold Shipman is the undisputed, undefeated champion of medical serial killers, having killed somewhere between 250 and 300 patients. He killed himself in prison, actually. But, um, and he made house calls. And if you walk down the street with a detective in England, as I did, and he'll say, he killed somebody in that house, and he killed somebody in that house, and he killed somebody in that house. All right, so um, just think of the history of England, and the first successful prosecution wasn't until Harold Shipman. There's, for everyone listening, there's a book called The Butchering Art, and it's about Victorian medicine around Joseph Lister. And it's leading up to it. If you just read the descriptions of hospitals, dude, uh, they would, they'd kill 30 people before lunch. 
And I don't think it was even intentional. <laughs> it was just so imagine if it was intentional. Well, remember, barbers used to be surgeons. You see, uh, that's what the red pole, the red and the white pole, you know. You, you see yeah, the yeah, red yeah, pole? yeah, 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 the bar, yeah. That was from the blood because the barber was the surgeon as well, you see. So you get Sorry. an operator and you get a haircut at the same time. I guess it was somewhat cost efficient, but that's, that's, that's the history of surgery was the barber. Hey, man. The barbers did a lot of minor surgery and... That's why the red and white pole is outside. Hey, man, you get a lobotomy, you get a haircut on the sides. Yeah, we'll get a lobotomy around the edges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shave it. Hey, you'll get it all for free. Uh, so a, a lot, a lot of them are redundant, and I and I know I'm, I'm burning your time. So we'll we'll ask uh, we'll ask one more, and it's as a newbie, how how hard was it to handle this? Are there any cases that are hard to forget? Um, did you build up a, a tolerance or a professional tolerance for it? And is it easy to to leave it at work? Um, you know what? It depends on the individual. Now, my history of uh, working at the VA, I had never done a homicide case until I got that phone call that I told you about. Um, I was never in a morgue. Never saw an autopsy, none of the above, okay? The first time when we had this doctor out in Northport, Dr. Michael Bodden, the mm -hmm. world-renowned medical examiner. Epstein. Um, he took me into the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office, the morgue, and I had never been there before. And I saw bodies laying out, some bodies cut open and the guts like put on the side of the body. Let me tell you, it's, it's a culture shock. It's a culture experience. Yeah. Different people handle it differently. I was lucky it didn't bother me. We wanted to take one of the prosecutors there. He wouldn't even walk in the room. Ugh. He refused to even walk in the room to see it. Okay, so it depends on the individual. And so I'm witnessing my first autopsy and Michael Bonin takes out the guy's heart. This is one of the people where the death certificate said they died of myocardial infarction. He says, hey, Bruce, you see this heart? Yeah, okay. He says, there's nothing wrong with it. That death certificate's bullshit. <laughs> okay. And... You know, and then after a while, as you do more and more of them, you know, like anything else, you, you, you became accustomed to it. But at first, it's a bit of a, a culture shock. Different people handle it differently. Some people, after a while, it didn't bother me in, in the least, you know. But at first, um, I, I'll tell you my, very quickly, my, my okay, first, yeah, no, I have all the time in the world. I've done this before. I was more a white-collar crime investigator. Yeah. So when we decide to do this investigation and Michael Bonin says, you know, Bruce, uh, we're going to have to exhume bodies. That means we have to go to the cemetery with the permission of the family and the court order and pull the bodies up and bring them to the morgue and look at it. So I find myself at a cemetery and then there's a backhoe and the backhoe comes and digs up the ground and the workers jump in and they put the cables underneath the coffin and the coffin comes up and then all of a sudden all this water like drops down from the coffin and then michael bonnie jumps into the gravesite i said what the hell is he doing 
and he was taking soil samples because if we find arsenic in the body, the defense will say, well, there was arsenic in the soil. So the arsenic uh, in the soil got into the body that way, okay? Wow. And you know what? I'm looking at this guy in my office. We had never done this before. And I said, boy, we really started some shit here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did anything like this. Put it in the, in the back of the medical examiner's vehicle. Go to the Suffolk County medical examiner's office. They open up the coffin. And there's the body. And it's interesting because some people get buried with like their favorite ring uh-huh. or their favorite necklace or something like that, which will help us identify the body because the body, yeah. depending on how well it's preserved at the funeral parlor, you know, depending on how much formaldehyde's pumped in there, could either still look like the person or not look like the person. And yeah. also we have to make sure we have the right person. So the family will tell us what they were buried in, what to look for and all that, you know? So we see that. And then they cut the body open. And I tell you, seeing a body that's been in the ground for months or maybe even a year was not the same shock as seeing somebody who died yesterday who still kind of looks like a person being cut open with their guts on the side. That was like, whoa. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This is going to take me a minute now. Yeah. It's going to take a minute. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. All right. But like anything else, you get get used to it. And of course, Michael Bonin, who has done, I don't know how many thousands of these, you know, I mean, to him, it's just, just, an, just another day on the job. But the guy is phenomenal. Yeah. But we've seen him in the news. You know, the families always call him when there's a murder and uh, he's like the number one forensic medical examiner in the world, I think. He's in his 80s now, he's Mm -hmm. about 85. He's been doing this since the 1950s. So it's hard to find somebody with more experience and more knowledge than he is. Thank God he was on my side. Yeah. Because he was on the defense side, I may not have made these cases. Yeah. Thank God he was on the side of the prosecution. Man, imagine if that guy wanted to be a serial killer. Who the hell is going to stop him? <laughs> um, so we've gone 10 minutes past what I promised you. So th- my two quick questions, very quick. Not even a question, or kind of a question. When are you going to put your book on Audible? You got to read your book, man. You got a great voice for it. It would, and people, I know a lot of people who, 100 of them, 99 will not read a book but 100 would listen to an audiobook. Uh, I hear you, but I have to convince the publisher. <laughs> no, it's a, just do it. Just do it. Just upload it. Just read it and upload it. We'll put it on my podcast. I don't care. <laughs> you know, um, well, it's, 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 it's not that simple. I, I, yeah, but I, I, would, I would love to do it. I was kind of hoping to do it, but... Um, I really think you should. You have, you have a fantastic yeah. voice for it, and just, I think, my generation in general. If I can't throw it on my phone while I'm walking around doing laundry, getting in the car... I know. The best thing you could do is download the electronic version. Yeah, you can put it. That's what I did. You put it on Kindle and you can have it read it to you. Right. Yeah. Not the same. Not the same. I wish wish they would allow me to read it because I think I have a lot of passion. You do. Well, you also have the voice that that you look exactly like when I read a description, you look exactly like that. Like that. This is who I imagine to be the guy that hunts down serial killing doctors. The voice, everything. You, this is who it is. So, 
And the last final question before we go. Did Epstein kill himself? Did who? Did Jeffrey Epstein kill uh, himself? Uh, uh, well, you know, Michael Bonin did that. <laughs> I know, time. I know. That's why I'm sneaking it in there. You know, he. I asked him. He declined their answer. On the uh, uh, oh, <laughs> oh, that's how you know it goes way too high. That's how you know it I goes know. too high. I honestly... That's like when the guy in the CIA. That's like when the guy. knows, but he hasn't told me. <laughs> that's like uh, I was. I'm listening to Skunk Works about the development of the SR-71 spy plane in the '60s to go spy on the Soviets, and uh, one of the engineers notices a tall CIA-looking guy standing there overseeing it, and he goes, "Who's that guy?" And his boss looks at him and goes, "I don't see anybody." Just kind of, <laughs> "Hey, shut up! This is we know about it. Kennedy knows about it." And no one else knows about so maybe it's yeah who killed Epstein? I sorry I didn't hear that. Maybe it's hey man, go home, take your paycheck, go home. I, I want to tell you a quick. Can I tell you a quick yeah. one minute story? I got all the time story. in the world. I just didn't want to keep you. I got quick I got nothing to do it. At nine eleven, after nine eleven, a number of us got sent up to the Staten Island landfill where they dumped all the, all the steel. Yeah. Okay. And Building Seven was the federal building. And that's where all the federal agencies were in, like the IRS and other Treasury, other agencies. And they assigned the federal agents who were there, myself included, to go through the debris of Building 7. And during lunchtime, we all had these little chairs and we sat on the chairs and we would put our agency name on the back of the chairs, like ours was B-A-O-I-G, okay? But there were a group of chairs there that had no names on them, okay? No agency names on them. So one of my wise-ass agents goes over to the guys and he says, hey, you know, hey, how you doing, guys? I said, you know, we're from the Veterans Affairs OIG. What agency are you from? And the guy very seriously and all turns to me and says, we can't tell you. And that group of people walk away, right? So one of my wise-ass agents takes a pen and goes to each chair and he writes CIA on the back of every one of those chairs. They came back, boy, were they pissed. Oh. <laughs> and we said, I don't know. I don't know what happened. You know, because apparently they were in the building, which is fine. I mean, they were in the building, but that's the kind of uh, clandestine world. You can't leave me on that note. That's that's another podcast. I'm sorry, but you just you just unofficially agreed to another podcast because you can't you can't walk out on a Building Seven CIA name drop and then you can't do that. That's a dot dot dot. So, yeah, so that's that's that story. And um, and on that note, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a black sheet over. Yeah, uh, on <laughs> that. Oh, yeah, on that note, there are some men in sunglasses knocking on my door. Yeah, I think, oh, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, I can see a black helicopter outside. Hold on, Bruce. Yeah. Bruce Sackman, thank you, sir. You're very Behind welcome. the Murder Curtain, available on Amazon, and soon enough, when Bruce puts the heat on him on Audible. So we'll I just, certainly hope so. Look, right. I, you got to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harass you until you do. And um, maybe in another month or two's time... We we have to do a podcast on what you just said about build. <laughs> we have to. That's we have to. That's you got my mind going. 
But 15 minutes past the allotted time. Thank you for your patience, sir. Thank you for what you do. You're very welcome. And um, you are obviously the face of it, but thank you to everyone that, that helps um, helps oh, yeah, bring these guys to justice. I don't, want to, I don't want anybody to think that I did this by myself. Yeah. I could never do it by myself if my life depended on yeah. it. It takes a team effort to do this. And I was fortunate because I had great agents and physicians and forensic nurses and toxicologists and an entire village of people doing this so and i think i make that very clear in my book yes, but i yes, don't want did. the impression that it was me myself and i because nothing could be further from the truth yeah it was a team effort oh yeah okay. no yeah no I, I i said that more as a formality whenever i have on the, the delta force guys i always say thank them for their service but also for every one of them there are 999 who who aren't on the podcast so it's yeah that's that's no, right. no way insinuating that that's that's what you meant. And um, if if you guys never hear from me or Bruce again, it's the CIA. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Stay safe. And um, hopefully all this COVID madness will pass and you can uh, set up that meeting again in New York. I certainly hope so. Let's okay. Hope so. Thank Be you, well, sir. everyone. Thank all you, right. sir. Bye-bye. Take care.